Well, good morning, everyone, and as always, welcome to First Baptist Church here in Rocky Top, Tennessee. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. We're continuing our series, our journey through the book of Acts. We're actually starting to get close to the end, sort of moving through things a little bit more quickly this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 21, in fact, look at a couple of things that even happened in Acts chapter 20, then go right up to Acts chapter 23. The Apostle Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. In fact, he will arrive at Jerusalem in what we're looking at this morning. And then he's on his way to Rome, the center of the world. I'm sure you've noticed that when people pray or talk about prayer, they often pray for a miracle. We've done it here, you've done it, I've done it. There's nothing wrong with this. I believe miracles happen. Sometimes we're aware of them, sometimes we're not. And I think that we should pray for God to work miracles, and of course I believe that He can and He does perform miracles in various ways even today. And I want to be clear, I don't need miracles to confirm or strengthen my faith, because I believe the greatest miracle, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. It's a fact of history, and through His work, through the redeeming work of Christ, I am saved. But I want to suggest another work of God that is different from a miracle, but it's no less significant, and that is the providence of God, God's providence. It's very interesting to look at this word. The meaning of the word providence is inextricably tied to God, and it means the protective care of God as a spiritual power. It's God's work in all aspects of life, all aspects of history, the events of history, the events of the universe, and even your life personally. In fact, the use of this word was so often synonymous with God in the past. God and providence meant the same thing. So close was the understanding of God's actions and care for the world. And looking at the use of the word providence, it's neat when you do some research online, even just through the Google search engine and look up words, you can see uh, trends of the use of certain words over time. And the word providence was very common in the vernacular in the late 1700s and through the 1800s, but its use has been on a steady decline up until this moment. The word is kind of an endangered word, if you will. We just don't use it that much, and we certainly don't understand what it means so often. You know, way back when I was trying to get a job teaching, my dream job was to work at Norris Middle School. And if you're listening to this, Norris Middle School is a school very close to this community. And I had completed some student teaching there, and it had, and it still has a great staff, a great principal, and it was and is a great school. And I just knew I wanted to be and work at Norris Middle School. I wanted to teach social studies, and it just so happened there was a position available. Well, Charity and I were getting married on Saturday, July 7th, 2007, and I got a call for an interview on July 5th, 2007, on that Thursday before we were to get married. But it wasn't for Norris Middle School. It was for Lake City Middle School. And I was happy to have the interview, but I was nervous that it wasn't my dream school. This wasn't my plan and the way that I wanted things to work out. So I went to the interview. I met the principal. And not too many hours later, I was called and offered the position. It was going to be teaching English, not social studies. And back in those days, you didn't turn anything down. Jobs were hard to come by. I was nervous, but I was grateful 
So I accepted the job. The very next day, however, the principal at Norris Middle School at the time called me and offered me a job to come there and teach social studies. This was my dream job with some people that I already knew and had friendships with. And I have to be honest, my heart sank because I was very deeply conflicted about what to do. But I will say I chose against my will at the time to keep the position at Lake City Middle School, even though I was deeply confused and, to be honest with you, disappointed because I had prayed to go to Norris Middle School. But little could I see at that time how God would use me at Lake City. You see, in God's providence, he gave me a love for the students, for the families, and for the entire community. And God has taught me a lot during my time at Lake City, now 17 years, and I can't imagine life being any different than what it is now. But at the time, I didn't know that. I didn't understand. I didn't see how it all lined up. But now looking back at so many blessings and works of God over the years, His providence was a miracle in my life. For a biblical example, there's the story of Esther. This is found in the Old Testament. An unlikely Jewish woman becomes queen of Persia and uncovers a plot by an evil man to kill all the Jews. You might have guessed this woman's name is Esther. And she intervenes eventually as the story goes on. It's a beautiful story. Perhaps we'll cover it sometime. She intervenes on behalf of her people after her uncle says these words to her. He says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The whole book of Esther presents God working in the shadows to bring upon his divine will and purpose. But interestingly, the name of God, or any version of God's name, does not appear in the entire book. There's no mention of God. And that brings us to our current story with the Apostle Paul, another story about God's providence. Now, what's going on with Paul? Well, we last left Paul as he was departing from his brothers and sisters in Christ with the church of Ephesus. And this was a very emotional departure. Paul was headed towards Jerusalem, and there was a price on his head. He was turning the world upside down with the gospel message of Christ. And while untold numbers were being saved under his obedience to God's call, there were still some who wanted Paul dead. And in Acts 21, as Paul makes his way and eventually arrives in Jerusalem, he meets up with James here and he addresses some concerns that the Jews had with the Gentile believers in Jerusalem. And he encounters a warning from a guy named Agabus. Imagine getting that name from a baby book. It goes like this. This is in Acts 21, verse 10. While they were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, us, remember, is Luke. He's the author of Acts. He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he heard this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since Paul would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Paul's companions had warned him that trouble would come once he arrived in the great holy city of Jerusalem. But Paul knew this was part of God's providence. God had revealed this to him. 
And Luke is masterfully showing this throughout the entire book of Acts. We've covered a lot in the book of Acts, but think back with me to the very beginning of this grand epic narrative. As Jesus is departing, he was ascending into heaven after his resurrection and spending some time with his followers post-resurrection, and he tells them their mission in Acts. Acts 1.8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. To the end of the earth. God the Holy Spirit would empower the early church to be witnesses of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem through the end of the world. And at that time, where was the end of the world? Well, it was Rome. The end of the earth was Rome. Luke is writing a historical narrative for us in the book of Acts, and he has had this purpose all along for the entire book to show how Jesus grew the church from ground zero in Jerusalem and took it to the ends of the earth, and how the gospel penetrated all levels of society, including the highest points of the Roman Empire. This has been the arc, the story arc from the very beginning that has governed everything that Luke has recorded for us under divine inspiration, and we're now in the final stretch. Luke shows us what happens here with Paul in Jerusalem that will get Paul to Rome, the catalyst that will get Paul to Rome. So please keep in mind, as we dive into what's happening here, keep in mind God's providence at the forefront of your mind, his divine plan, and his divine purpose. And the first bit here, we're going to see the Apostle Paul get arrested. Now, I kind of want to tell you here, I'm going to jump around a little bit, so there's going to be some sections I'm not going to read for time's sake, but I'm hopefully going to be able to sort of fill in the bits here for you to help you to understand. But I would, of course, as always, encourage you to go back and read over this again to get some of those details that perhaps I might not quite get to today as we study this message. This is Acts 21, verses 27 through 40. I'll give you just a moment to find it. It goes like this. When the seven days were almost completed... The Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everywhere, everyone against the temple, or against the people and the law, and this place, the temple. Down in verse 33, Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So then, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, this is down in verse 37, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and we'll get to that here in just a moment. So Paul is, in a way, rescued by a Roman commander here as this riot, as this mob is sort of uh, getting things together. And this is the part I didn't read. And once he's arrested, Paul looks at this man and he's speaking with him, and as he's speaking, the Roman commander says to Paul, do you speak Greek? He's perplexed here. He says, are you not an Egyptian? Are you not that Egyptian that has caused all of this turmoil? Now, let's talk a little bit about that. So this Roman commander thought that Paul was a terrorist, and he was surprised that Paul was an educated man, and that Paul could speak Greek. The language was a surprise because both the language and the phrasing showed that Paul 
was an educated man in the Greek world, that he wasn't some fly-by-night rough thug that had sort of staged this coup to overthrow the temple. And so Paul asked this Roman commander if he could have a moment to speak with the people. And again, this is when the Roman soldier asked Paul if he was that Egyptian. Now, this could easily be lost on contemporary readers. It seems kind of odd and out of place. So what's meant here? Well, the Egyptian mentioned is also mentioned by the Jewish historian Josephus. And this person had led a ragged army of about 4,000 men to the Mount of Olives there in Israel, where they declared that they would take over the Temple Mount, and Roman soldiers intervened and quickly scattered them, but the leader got away. So this Roman soldier, this Roman commander, thought for a moment that Paul was this leader that had escaped and was essentially a leader of this terrorist organization. But Paul says, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no small city. So when Paul identifies himself to this Roman commander, it puts him in an entirely different standing. He was a citizen of Tarsus, not a suspected terrorist. And then Paul asks him, can I speak to the people? So it's amazing here that at this moment, when Paul's life was in danger from this angry mob, and he was being suspected of being this criminal, this terrorist, he asked to speak about Jesus. We've got got quite a good storm going on in the background today. But Paul had one thing on his mind. Let me tell the people about Jesus. Let me preach the gospel. And interestingly, Paul allows this person to address, the, or excuse me, the commander allows Paul to address this person, this mob that wanted to kill him. So the Roman commander probably was hoping that Paul's speech would quiet the mob. And at first, it did, in fact, quiet the people down. So Paul, he stands on the stairs and he motions with his hand to the people. And there is this great silence amongst the people. And then he begins speaking to them in the Hebrew language. Now this is clearly a God-ordained moment. Paul is standing on the stairs overlooking this massive open courtyard of the Temple Mount. He sweeps his hand and the angry, rioting mob goes silent. And then Paul begins to speaking to them in the Hebrew language, Aramaic, identifying himself with his Jewish audience, not with the Roman protectors here. This was an opportunity that Paul had waited a lifetime for. He had a deep love and passion for the salvation of his fellow Jews. We read about this in his letters, particularly in his letter to the Romans. And he probably thought of himself as uniquely qualified to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to them if he only had the right opportunity. And now God gives him this opportunity and this is what he said. On down in Acts 22, actually at the opening of Acts 22, verse 1, this is how the chapter opens. Paul says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, the Christian way. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters 
to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. And then there was one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. He came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your side. And at that very hour I received my side. And Ananias said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw Jesus saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And then Jesus said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now I know there's a lot there, so let me try to quickly unpack it. Paul was giving his personal testimony here. It was his conversion story. The crowd becomes quiet as Paul begins to speak to them in Hebrew or Aramaic, which was the common language of the, many of the Jews of that time. And it would have further distinguished Paul from, his, from the Romans. Now, most people in that time spoke a language known as Kone Greek, which was the language of the Roman Empire. But Paul knew his Jewish audience, and he was addressing them in their native tongue. It was a brilliant move on so many levels. Paul spoke as a Jew unto Jews, and he was careful to lay the common ground between them. And so Paul begins to tell of his life before Jesus Christ and his life after he surrendered to Jesus. Luke told the story of Paul's conversion in Acts 9. We've already covered that. And after that, Paul goes on to tell the story in some way at least four more times in the New Testament. And each has its own sort of unique purpose. Here where we're at in Acts 22, Paul is telling the story to persuade the Jews to follow Christ. Later on in Acts 26, he's going to tell the story to persuade the Gentiles. Later on in one of his letters, Philippians 3, he's going to tell it for theological purposes. And then he's going to write to Timothy, and he's going to tell Timothy the story to encourage him. And so Paul noted that he was born outside of the Promised Land, born in Tarsus. But he was brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. It was, he was one of the most prestigious rabbis of the day. So Paul here was building his Jewish stout, his credentials. If you'll pardon the phrase for just a moment, Paul was saying, look to his Jewish friends, I'm not only a Jew, I am a super Jew. I am as Jewish as you can possibly get. Paul had not received his knowledge from some mail-in degree program. There was a strong pedigree of knowledge and training from the best in the land. And as Paul stated in another place in Philippians, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law. He was a Pharisee. To the smallest, most minute detail, Paul kept the law that was understood by the spiritual elite of his day. All of it. He was zealous toward God. 
Paul says this, he was zealous towards God, he says to the crowd, as you all are today. This mob who had just tried to murder him and would have eagerly murdered him, Paul tries to find something complimentary to say about him, and he basically says this, you were zealous toward God. Paul never forgot what he was like before he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It had been over 20 years at this point, but Paul still remembered how he was and how he had treated Christians, and he remembered the moment he was wrong. The moment God spoke to him and called him out of darkness into his wonderful light, Paul recognized that he was wrong. You know, in a lot of ways it's counterintuitive, but what a glorious day it is when we realize that we are wrong and that God is right. It may be simply stated, but such a wonderful, wonderful thing to realize. Paul was sincere, but he was a master communicator, something obviously God had gifted him with. And he continues to share the story of his Damascus Road encounter that he had had with Christ. He was blinded by the light of Christ. He was led by others, and eventually Ananias, a follower of Christ, visits Paul and ministers to him. Paul is forgiven of his sins, he's baptized, and he follows Jesus. And then Paul wants to preach to the Jews. This is a detail that he includes here in this story. As he's at the temple, he's praying, and God or Jesus is going to call him out of Jerusalem, and Paul, in a very humble way, objects. He wants to stay and preach the gospel to the Jewish people. He thought that they would listen to him, but Jesus does not allow Paul to stay in Jerusalem. In his providence, he was going to send Paul away. Paul would begin his missionary journeys, and now we find him some 20 years later back in Jerusalem. And when Paul was touched by God in Damascus, he was told that he was going to preach to the Gentiles. And here in the temple, or a long time ago in that temple, when uh, Paul is having that conversation with Christ, Jesus sends him to the Gentiles and reiterates that mission. And so Paul makes it clear here, and it's interesting, that it wasn't his idea to preach to the Gentiles, but that was God's plan, not his. And he hoped that it also explained to the crowd why he seemed so friendly to the Gentiles. Paul was obeying the words of Christ. And so the mob listened carefully up to this point, up until this talk about the Gentiles. You see, in their minds, they could swallow this talk about Jesus, but they could not fathom the idea that God might save the Jews and Gentiles in the same way. This message of Jesus that both Paul and the New Testament proclaims is this, that you and I, that all people come to God just as we are, Jew, Gentile, foreigner, high class, low class, rich or poor, but you must come to him through Jesus Christ. At the foot of the cross, it is level ground. And it implied that the Jews and the Gentiles here were equal, and they had to come to God on the same terms. And this infuriates them. They rush at Paul, and they start this rioting passion again. And this time, they want Paul flogged. Now, flogging, particularly by the Romans, was a brutal beating that often resulted in the death of the victim. It was used to elicit a confession. And the Jewish flogging, bad as it was, was much less severe than a Roman flogging. But, and so Paul is going to be beaten here by the Romans, and he's actually bound. And just before he's about to be beaten, Paul reveals that he is a Roman citizen. 
and it spooks the Roman commander because, you see, it was illegal to flog a Roman citizen. In fact, it was illegal to even bond a Roman citizen without due process of law. And so the chief priests were command, uh, the chief priests were uh, called, and Paul was going to go, and he was going to appear to them at this council, and he was going to preach to them. This was interesting because Paul was going to receive a dramatic second chance. The opportunity to preach to the mob here on the Temple Mount ended in another riot, but he was going to go and speak before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the council, the governing council, the very next day. It was sort of a congress or parliament that the Jews had, and Paul would be given this opportunity to speak to this group that he was likely once a member of, as Acts 26 is going to reveal to us. And so this was going to be an opportunity of a lifetime to preach to those he loved so much and he knew so well. So God had revealed a plan to Paul right at his conversion that Paul was going to be a chosen vessel to bear the name of Christ before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. Paul knew the general plan, but just like us, he didn't know how it would all work out. He had to trust God just like every believer. So quickly, some timeless takeaways to apply this to our life. One is learn to recognize the providence of God. If Paul had been totally in control of his life, he would have never become a Christian. But even after his conversion, if Paul had had his way, he would have stayed in Jerusalem and preached to the Jews, his brethren. But God had a different plan, once again, to take the gospel to the Gentiles and bring him full circle to Rome. God was moving the Apostle Paul toward a point, and from this moment forward, Paul would be in Roman custody, and God would bring him before the Sanhedrin and then before the Roman officials, and each time he would have an opportunity to share the gospel. One of my favorite poems is lengthy, but I'm going to pull an excerpt from this by James Russell Lowe as he pins the words to this poem, Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Like Paul, we may know the general outline of what God wants us to do. Know him, love him, serve him, glorify him. But how this is accomplished, we have to leave up to God. Some people do this easier than others. For me, it's not so easy. But it is about trusting and obeying. Thank God for his providence and look back over your life and see how God has moved and orchestrated things for his glory in your life. Secondly, your personal testimony is powerful. When Paul began his defense, he would go on to share the great truths of the gospel, but he started with his story of how he came to Christ, and he would share this over and over again. We like dramatic and bombastic stories of conversion, and Paul had one. But the focus was not on his work, but on the work of Christ. Never think that your story of coming to faith in Jesus is too simple, or God forbid, too dull to share. God often uses these simple stories to show his sweet relationship with his people. And what you have to share about God's work in your life is wonderful and special and true. And finally, knowing Christ brings a comfort the world can never provide. Through all the trouble that we read that Paul had, we also read that the Lord 
stood by Paul. The Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage. You know, like many of you, I've been with people that have a deep and meaningful relationship with Christ, and I've been with others who do not. There's a great difference in the peace a Christian has versus the peace of the world. How could Paul calmly speak to the Roman commander who held his fate? The peace of Christ. How could he stand before a mob of bloodthirsty people and share the gospel? The peace of Christ. How could he love them and have a deep yearning desire for them to come to the knowledge of the truth? The peace of Christ. Jesus stood by Paul every moment. Yes, Paul suffered, but he was never forsaken. The story had come full circle, and Paul would write to the church of Rome, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, in the past I've read through the book of Acts in the New Testament quite a few times. And when I've read the book of Acts and begin this final stretch to the end, I've always read it as somewhat of a sad story. The lowly apostle, now in chains, is approaching the end of his earthly life. He's persecuted and he's in prison. He's mocked and he's made fun of. But I have to say I'm not reading it this way this time. There's a sense of victory, but it's odd because it's a victory that is not obvious to worldly eyes. It is a victory that can only be seen for those who know Christ and the power of his resurrection. You know, I hope that everyone here and everyone listening has that peace. If you do not, I'd love to talk with you and, like Paul did for so many, introduce you to Jesus who can bring that peace. And for those of us who do know him, I pray that we recognize God's actions throughout our lives and his providence. Some of us have lived a short time and some of us are well on in years. But we all have a story that God has written, anchored by his love for us. Heavenly Father, as we close this morning's service, help us to look back over our lives and see your fingerprints on the story that you are writing for us. Times when we were uncertain, disappointed, grieving, or even devastated, you were there. You never will forsake. Help us to see that even in the moments that didn't turn out quite like we thought, prayers that seemed unanswered, that you still had a purpose, and the purpose was for the good of those who love you, who were called according to your purpose. Help us to share our testimony of faith with others so that we can lead people to you and the peace, the eternal peace, that only you can give. In Jesus' name, amen.